0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for grace in this time. As I seek to reveal mysteries to your people that are well beyond my comprehension and theirs, but the little bit that we can grasp at, Lord, help us. Help us to glean what we may of your eternal purpose in the way that you pursue the Father's elect unto salvation the way that you pursue us to the ends of the earth, if necessary, to gather all of your lost sheep unto yourself. We thank you for so great a love and we thank you that you do pursue us, Lord, because left to our devices we would never pursue you. I pray for a movement of the Spirit without which I can do nothing. I pray for those that are here that don't know you, that they would come to know you even today. That this would be the place where you finally catch up to them and bring them into the fold. I praise you and I thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Some years ago, I was contracted to do work on the exterior of a very large commercial property. And it was in a certain city and in a downtown area that had become very much dilapidated, as many have. Um, and had sat vacant for many years. It used to be a department store, though. And I love exploration. I love discovery. And so I badly wanted to go inside of this thing and look around. But I had no justifiable reason to because, again, I was contracted to work on the outside. But uh, at the risk of imposing, I asked the property owner anyhow if I could go in and explore, and he said Yes. And, um, you know, when you go into a structure like that, you lose perspective on where you are. Orienteering is pretty difficult once you've been in a number of different hallways and rooms. You don't know where north is or south or east or west. And so you very frequently don't really have a concept of what's behind the next door. Sometimes you can be in a relatively small room and you think you're opening a door to another small room or you think you're opening a door to a hallway connecting two rooms and you end up discovering behind that door that there is instead a grand room, maybe two, three hundred feet long, 40-foot ceilings. (laughs) Studying the Bible is a lot like that very often. You have a text and you think that it simply bridges the gap between two thoughts. And especially as a preacher, you start developing that portion because you're not going to skip it and you think what I have here is a point in my sermon. But then that point grows and it grows and it grows and it becomes clear that that is not a point in your sermon. It is the point of the sermon. And that in fact happened to me this week, which is why I raised that. It's happened to me a number of times. And the grand room is in Acts 16. I originally thought it was a hallway, but it is far more than that. It, It pertains to the sovereign guiding hand of Jesus by His Spirit as He gathers all His little lambs, leaving behind none through a process of bending souls and whole civilizations to His divine will. But before we get to that from our text, as an introduction to it, This ingathering of every soul appointed unto eternal life is actually the point of the much maligned 2 Peter 3.9. And I'm going to read that to you, but in order to understand what I'm driving at, I'm going to start back in verse 3 of that chapter. And there's an argument here, by the way, that culminates in great comfort for the believers. That's the point of verse 9, but you won't know that if you don't understand what precedes it. So, Starting again in verse 3 of 2 Peter 3, this is now beloved, that's key, that's who he's writing to, which is believers, this is now beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets of the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your Apostles, knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. And now here is that common statement that is most commonly deprived of the context that I just gave to you. And that is verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing for any of you to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Upon closer examination, and not even much closer, that is not a proof text for the Arminian position as it is commonly used. It is, in fact, a proof text against their position. That is as strong an affirmation of election as you are going to get. True of predestination unto judgment and also salvation. And uh, to the former it's clear that when Peter speaks of the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by his apostles that he is certainly speaking in part of the coming judgment that was pro- that was uh, before promised and he's making clear he is in fact coming. And that's part of the comfort that they receive because they are being mocked obviously. In the text, we're saying that a judgment is coming, and everybody says, Que Sarah, it is as it has been. You Christians foolishly live like a judgment's coming when none actually is. He's saying, don't listen to that. Indeed, it is coming. And keep preaching to people that it is, and that they can flee the wrath to come and find salvation in Christ. But judgment's not all that's coming. According to Peter, so is the rescue of every soul previously marked out by God from before the foundation of the world, and this will happen prior to that judgment. Judgment's not coming until God has all of his. That's why in the previous chapter, Peter speaks of the salvation of Noah and Lot. Both men were rescued in circumstances of an outpouring of profound divine wrath, and this was the message of the prophets also. Think of Ezekiel thirty-four eleven through 15. This is one of the many places in which this is promised. Might have been one of the places that Peter was thinking of when he referenced the prophets. Ezekiel says there, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest declares the Lord God. So God says through Peter and Ezekiel, I will seek my own and I will find them. I will go into hostile nations. I will go into pagan lands that do not know my name, and I will write my name on every heart that I have elected before I set time in place. I will pursue them to the ends of the earth to make them mine. And that promise echoes in the words of Christ as well. John 10, 11 through 14. I am the good shepherd. And I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So says the Lord Jesus, I will scour the thickets and the hedgerows, and I will pull all of my little lambs from their entanglements, be they what they may, and I will carry them beneath my arms to the safety of my flock. What we will see today is the process by which Christ gathers his little lambs, missing none, as it is played out before us. And in doing so, I trust, receive the same comfort that Peter gave in his second epistle and that Ezekiel gave in the passage that I read to you. We are in Acts 16, verses 6 through 13. I'll tell you at the outset, though, we're going to barely touch the events that occur at the end of the text until next week. We will go into those more deeply for this week's study, though. The conclusion is our destination, which is important, and therefore we will note it, but our real objective is to understand the journey. And that begins in verse 6 of Acts 16. Please look there with me now. They, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, having just been added to the team, passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now the place to start here is to understand what is in Asia and what in fact even constitutes Asia because when we refer to that we mean something different than what they meant and what the Bible speaks of. The ancient variation which Paul has been forbidden by the Spirit to enter at this moment though is more familiar to you than you might think. It includes some towns with which you are well acquainted with as students of the New Testament. Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia for example, also Laodicea, Colossae, Sardis, Pergamum, and Thyatira. That is where that closed door would have led had it been opened. And by pretty clear implication of what occurs in verse 6, Paul's plan was in fact to go to Asia, thus that door had to be closed. But what is explicitly clear is that the Holy Spirit has said no. What we don't know, though, is how he said no. Could have been through providence, the same way that our travel plans or similar to the way that our travel plans get canceled for us. uh, Flight gets canceled, weather doesn't cooperate, funds don't come through, that sort of thing. Any number of things like that may have occurred. I don't think that's the case, though. Can't prove it. But this feels much more personal as we continue to move on, so I think this no came by way of prophetic utterance, whether from the mouth of Paul himself or through one of his companions or through somebody in a local church that they were at. But either way, the third person of the Trinity has said no, but he has not said uh, no forever. He has said not yet, because as I read the names of those towns, you know that the gospel is going there. You know that revival will be brought to those places. There are many reasons why the Spirit doesn't want them there yet, and uh, many of these reasons I'm sure cannot be known by we as mere humans. But there is at least one major reason that can that I'd like to point out to you, and that is that in similitude to earthly farmers, the Lord of the harvest prepares the soil before he plants also. And very clearly, by implication, the soil in Ephesus is not yet ready because the Spirit has not yet made it ready. Same with Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossae, Sardis, Pergamum, and Thyatira. Thyatira. Christ is not yet pushing into Asia because Asia has not yet been cultivated by the Spirit, and until it is, it is not going to receive the witness that it will not be ready for. That witness being blessed is contingent upon the souls of God's elect in those places, being properly prepared to become converted. And they're not yet. Since I keep using farming references, you can think of here the gospel as rain And the soil in Asia as hydrophobic, as it is called. Maybe you're not familiar with that term, but maybe you have visited some desert country and you're aware of the fact that a normal rain here is devastating there. You know why that is? When they get a reasonable amount of rain by our standards, it's because the soil is not constituted to receive that. Therefore, you get massive flooding. And so if you're going to plant there or to make this metaphor complete, if if you're going to have a work of the gospel there, you have to reconstitute what is at present, the condition there on the ground. You have to work different materials into the soil, and you have to do much work in order for that to be accomplished, in order for them to be prepared. And in this, we see something about revival that should be obvious to us, but isn't because very often we don't think about it. That is that revival of the sort that will be occurring in Asia when the spirit does open the door is not spontaneous. Irrespective of how all of a sudden it may seem to us, it is never all of a sudden to God, and this is always true. Long before, even generations before, the beautiful feet of those who preached the gospel ever reached the shore of a given land to reap the harvest, the spirit was there, tilling the ground. And as I say this, I want you to recognize that we have happened upon something truly profound we have opened the door to what I foolishly once thought was a hallway and found a great room. And we need to advance into it and study what is inside of it, which is the preparation of souls by the Spirit through which He will save. And also the timing of His servant's witness, which is ordered thereby. And we're going to consider this, but because it's difficult to think of this first in terms of a regional or national Revival. I want you to consider it in light of your own conversion because something occurs individually with all of us in likeness to what occurs on that mass scale. Start here with a question. What was your life situation when you became a Christian and leading up to your conversion? If you don't know this, let me make you aware your heart was hardened to God prior to that point. So the question is, what made it soft? What series of events made it soft? Well, knowing you all as I do, let me speak for you, if I may. I'm not going to be singling out any of you by name, but I'm going to give you examples here that are true of individuals in this congregation, and I myself am in this list as well. I won't say which belongs to who, but all of this derives from our testimonies. Okay? So I'm going to speak in terms of us and we, so first, some of us were slaves to sexual sin. and Sexual sin is indeed slavery. We were like Augustine. We could not break free. And because we could not effectuate that change on our own, we turned to the Lord recognizing that whatever the solution was, it wasn't in us. And He brought us to the end of ourselves and made us instead slaves of Christ. But it was the extent of that sin and the depths to which we had sunk into it and our inability to break free from it that demonstrated our need of salvation and therefore we turned to the Lord. Others were on the precipice of divorce. Still others actually had just gone through divorces. And these were used. But others were on the verge And they were looking down the barrel of that loaded gun, recognizing that their lives were about to be ruined and their children's lives as well. And so in that desperation, they turned to the Lord and became the bride of Christ. And I don't think this person would mind me saying this, but in this particular instance of which I am speaking mostly, marriage was restored. The Lord was good to them in that as well. Some had utterly destroyed family and friend relationships with their sins. And you know, when you lose earthly fellowship, it can in a special way convince you of your need for that. And so the Lord gave them fellowship with Him and fellowship with His people. And some of us had grievous sins that we had kept secret, they were all of a sudden brought into the light. And so what the psalmist did at the leading of the Holy Spirit, we were more forced into, but with the same blessed result. Psalm 32, 3 through 5, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. God pressed, and he pressed, and he pressed, and he pressed, and you broke. And then you turned to the Lord in your brokenness. For others, though, we had more of a dull ache in our souls that we could just not break free from. We call this depression, despondency. What results from it is anxiety. And we just kept getting lower and lower and lower. And it became to us a sort of barometer letting us know that something was very, very wrong And the Lord used that to demonstrate to us through the preaching of the Word what exactly was wrong and then we turned in joy to the God of our salvation. Still others, though, became terrified of divine judgment. And there are those in our day that would say fear of hell is a bad reason to come to God. Au contraire, mon frere. Fear of hell just demonstrates that you actually get something of what hell will be for you. That was central in my life. Didn't want to go there, fled the wrath to come, turned to the Lord Jesus. Though for many of us, I will say, it wasn't any one of those things, but a combination of multiple of them working at the same time. And ultimately, all of these threads came together into a single point. God granted us conversion. Now, I want you to understand that preceding the forthcoming revival in Asia, this is happening, but it is happening at scale. On these threads that are coming together into a single point, they are all individual souls. It is happening in this person, in that person, people from different walks of life, in different economic strata, strata different levels of society, people who are impoverished, people who have great wealth and political power, and they're all going to be brought into the same local churches through revival. But as there was a sowing that preceded the reaping in each of us, the same is true of cities and regions wherein the gospel is going to be blessed in a special way. Nothing's by accident. And there is a great work of God that has already begun in these places. He just will not allow the minister to be there yet because it is not time and in a future sermon on missiology that's going to roll into ecclesiology i'm going to expand upon this concept further and the implications of it in particular to uh, missions work but here let me simply as a final word say that the holy spirit forbidding these missionaries to speak the word in asia in no way mitigates against their responsibility to preach the gospel wherever they go Do not come away with a mistaken conclusion. Their commission in giving the gospel is as clear and as constant as ours is. Therefore, what determined where they shared the gospel was where they were permitted to go in the providence of God and where they were forbidden to go in the providence of God. So if you're asking yourself, based upon this, well, how do I know if I'm supposed to give the gospel where I'm at? Well, the fact that you're there is the answer to your question. Paul was not silenced in Asia by the Holy Spirit. He was prevented from going to Asia entirely. No man has the right to determine if he's going to give the gospel or not. That is the work of sovereign God, the Holy Spirit of God. And by the way, that holds true in a shake the dust off your feet scenario as well, right? Because God has revealed to you that the gospel is not being blessed. All you're doing is recognizing that that is true. You're not setting yourself in the position of God by saying this person's just not ready or that person's not ready. How the heck do you know? You were formed of dust the same way that they were. And that is way beyond your pay grade. And as I say this, I'm reminded of a certain coward whose poor testimony demonstrated how to twist this concept in our text in order to justify your unfaithfulness to the Great Commission, and I won't leave him unnamed. His name is Francis Chan. And the man graduated Master's Seminary and went on to uh, prove very, very unfaithful. But there was this video being passed around the Internet back when I was still on the Internet and my chains had not yet been broken free for me. And I moved on to things more important. But this, this video was him, and he was ministering to this group of devout Roman Catholics, and after he was done saying whatever he was saying, there was a Q&A that followed. And I do not remember exactly the question that one woman asked. But it seemed to me that she was not trying to ask him a gotcha question, but that she was being very sincere. And it was directly related to salvation. I mean, at the very center of the gospel. But she phrased it in a way that recognized the distinctions between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. And there too very different positions. And so she asked for clarification, effectively, which is right, which has the way of salvation. And he responded to her by saying, I don't believe the Holy Spirit wants me to answer that question. To which I just about threw the device that I was watching that on, and I wanted to say, and if I had been there speaking to him, I would have said, I'm sorry, you mean the Holy Spirit of truth? As he's called in Scripture, the Holy Spirit of truth wants you to withhold the truth of salvation from the people that you're supposed to be ministering to. You're a liar and a coward. Don't use that this way. All right? What you need to understand is that where the gospel goes and does not go is entirely the decision of the spirits. And he makes that decision manifest by sending witnesses to a given place or preventing them from going and not by some extra-biblical carve-out for situations where you find telling the truth to be especially costly or icky or whatever. And for anybody who would be tempted to make that kind of a decision themselves, to take this kind of planning unto themselves, I would direct you to Psalm 131 and remind you of its content. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child, rest against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. That is way beyond us. So just be faithful where you're at. And in conclusion of this thought, and for the sake of utmost clarity, in case I have not been clear already, it is for God to say no to the spread of the gospel if he so chooses. It is for us to simply say what? Christ saves sinners through faith and repentance, and if you'll turn to him now, he'll save you. And that is our message in every place that he has permitted us to go. That said, pick up in verse 7. And after they came to Mysia which is a region north of Asia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And there you have the same concept again, but this time the reference is to the Spirit of Jesus specifically, who is pumping the brakes. Now let me stop at this point, and I want to point out to you that while we rightly think of the book of Acts as a second-person narration from Luke, it is also a first-person narration from the Holy Spirit, which is not to render Luke a robot or merely passive. Spirit is, of course, using his particular writing style and his perspective, but the Spirit is through him telling his story, his way, even down to the specific phrasing. So based upon this, my question to you is, why does Luke refer to him as the Holy Spirit in verse 6 and the Spirit of Jesus in verse 7? And don't attribute it to merely a skilled writer avoiding redundant characterizations, okay? This isn't just that kind of relatively meaningless nuance. This is a title, and one invoked very deliberately here. And he overlooked others in order to invoke it. The Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit of God, Spirit of Truth, as he is called elsewhere, so why does the third person of the Trinity, through his servant Luke, call himself the spirit of Jesus here? Well, he does so because the third person of the Trinity wants you to know that he is here acting as the very hands of the second person of the Trinity. The head of the church himself is carving channels through the ancient world. He is very deliberately cutting a path For Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and it is the Lord Jesus. Sovereign over all, ruling and reigning, collecting the elect of the Father from every place where they are to be found. In keeping with the Father's plan, as Paul wrote to the as yet unreached Ephesus, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, He, the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. The Father has known every single soul that will be adopted by Him through Christ since before creation, since before time, since before you could even conceive of a concept as forever And that includes the soul soon to be introduced to us in Acts 16. That all of this very deliberate guidance is first to benefit and most directed toward. But although he has known these intimately from all time, he has not yet, as far as they are concerned, known them as Abba Father. That requires faith which is imparted in time and not from eternity past. So he has known them thus far simply and profoundly as the father of their creation who formed them in their mother's wombs fearfully and wonderfully. And the father will even determine the time of their births, the places of their births, determine where they now remain, all the circumstances that led to them remaining there, And as Jesus was born and entered time at the fullness of time according to the Father's will, so have these souls been born into exactly the time of his choosing that he may effectuate their salvation, thus making himself their Abba Father through faith and repentance in response to the preaching of the gospel. But this work done by the Father in the church age is done through the Son and by the Son in a special way such that one may say and must say that King Jesus is sovereign over all. And our text clearly states that it is he who is saying yes to one city and no to another. That's the reference to the Spirit of Jesus. He is the decision maker. We also say here that this is why the geography lessons in Acts matter enough to have been included. And I say this for the benefit of those of you who may struggle to care about the geographical information that we are being given Just a bunch of ancient names to ancient towns that don't seem to signify much. Maybe this feels to you like receiving point-by-point directions from somebody when you have already indicated at the beginning of the conversation that you have a GPS because you live in the year of our Lord, 2023, and only require the address to the destination. Nevertheless, they proceed to give you all the street names from here to there, complete with landmarks person probably being a man of a certain age who's very proud of the fact that he still knows how to get from point A to point B and wants you to be equally as proud, but you still don't understand why he's even talking because you've explained all of this. Sometimes when you receive this geography, it might feel like that to you. But if it does, brother, sister, you completely miss the plot. And this plot of which I speak is revealed explicitly elsewhere in Acts as it is here. One of those places is Acts eighteen nine through 11. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Those people of which the Lord speaks in that context are not yet his children. They are those who will become his children. Thus, verse 11, and he, Paul, settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Paul encountered incredible opposition, and the Lord said, Do not leave, stay, because I have people in this city I have not yet gathered unto myself, and I will gather them unto myself through your preaching. Thus, Acts thirteen forty-eight, paraphrased, is applied. As many as are appointed to eternal life in each city will be gathered by the Lord through the preaching of his gospel as guided by his sovereign hand. And going back to Acts 16 and picking up in verse 8, we'll see that guidance continue. Verse 8, and passing by Mysia and turning west, they came to Troas. Troas was another port city. So Paul and company here are now sitting at a port. They don't know which ship to take, though, and they don't know where that ship should be going because they had plans, but those plans have been changed by the Spirit of Jesus. So instead of Christ serving their will, which he never does with his servants, He will reveal his will to them supernaturally. Verses 9 and 10, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Obviously, Paul had a vision sent from the Holy Spirit of a man of Macedonia, beckoning him, come, And the man's identity is left a mystery to us. But as is always the case, when there is mystery in a text, certain commentators turn to wild conjecture, and that is what has happened here to the effect of this, perhaps posthumously being Alexander the Great, yes, the same who died like three centuries prior to this, and somehow Paul understands that this is Alexander the Great, that sort of thing, makes me want to close the commentary and throw it out the second story window in the room that I'm studying. I can't stand that. In fact, I'm willing to go on record and say that it's at least not one person, and that one person is Alexander the Great, and that's just out of spite for doing that to the text. I can't stand that sort of thing. I have no idea who this is. Nobody else actually does. Either. It's very possible, in fact, that this isn't any prominent Greek, simply an unknown one, sort of an NPC. I don't know anything about video games, but my children play them, and I do at least know that there are non-playing characters and just sort of nondescript, and there, maybe he was dressed in like Phi Beta Kappa garb, and somehow Paul just knew that he was a generic Greek, and to go there, I don't know. What is clear is that the Holy Spirit wants them in Greece, Paul and company acknowledge, and so continuing in verse 11, so putting out to sea from Troas, which was an important port positioned between Asia and Macedonia, ran a straight course to Samothrace, which is an island pit stop uh, with a very discernible mountain range that rose about 5,000 feet above sea level, and on the day following to Neapolis, which was the port that led to nearby Philippi being about 10 miles away from it, and thus verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. Now besides the geography lesson, something just happened there in the text in verse 10 of tremendous significance to us as students of this book. I'm going to guess it sailed right past you because I took you right through it and didn't mention anything. But this matter of great significance pertains to Luke. And if you didn't catch it, let's go back and we're going to compare and contrast verse 7 and verse 10. Verse 7. After they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. All right, so let's look again to verse 10. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us, to preach the gospel to them, and that is not just a one-off. Look to verse 11. We ran a straight course to Samothrace. Coming soon in verse 13, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down. Obviously, the pronouns have changed. Why have the pronouns changed? Well, because second-hand investigative journalism has now become first-hand narration because Luke is telling this story now as a part of it, almost certainly serving Paul here as an itinerant doctor, following him around, helping him with his many uh, physical issues that have occurred as a result of, for example, being stoned, presumably to death, but not actually. That established, as we near the end of our study, there is one burning question that remains, which is what sort of a person and or group is worth all of this redirection and this direct intervention from the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of Jesus. All of these terms, all of this intentionality, it's got to be to pick up somebody great or a group of them. It's got to be a VIP or on the level of maybe a Saul of Tarsus who's going to become some incredible missionary known to people of every age because of their impact upon the church of Christ. Maybe an individual like the Ethiopian eunuch who's going to take the gospel himself to a whole unreached region of the world. Maybe somebody like Sergius Paulus, who we encountered in a previous chapter, Roman prefect, a man of great power and influence, maybe a Menaean, who we also encountered previously, the foster brother of one of the Herods. Well, these are indeed very important persons to the Lord Jesus but they are probably not what you might have been expecting. I'm going to look there in a moment, but uh, let me just say here briefly, this is a group of ladies gathered in the open air, not a man to be found amongst them. They are gathered in the open air because in ancient times you had to have ten Jewish men in order to justify the formation of a synagogue. They do not, it would appear, have any men And so the Lord Jesus by his spirit has done all of this guiding and all of this directing for them. Look with me to verse 13. And you will see the beginnings of this for yourself. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Didn't have a church because there wasn't, according to, to the standard of the day, a justification to have one, but these ladies faithfully met. And a, an understudy of the great Gamaliel himself comes to these women to reveal the fact that he is, in fact, also an understudy of a much greater rabbi, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. What I am saying to you, and what is evident from this account, is that if there were a single soul foreordained unto salvation in a given place, irrespective of their capacity to contribute to the cause or their perceived greatness or lack thereof, Christ would seek them and he would find them, period. God does not esteem us the way that we esteem each other. He provides the love and the loveliness which warrants the love. And his eternal promise is all the motivation that he needs to seek and to save that which is lost. Because he has said it, he will do it. And if you are here and you are praying for one of these lost ones to come home, first, remember, God doesn't owe you their salvation. Because they are a child born of you does not mean that he is required to make them a child born again of him. But what you are learning is to hope in the Lord because they're not more lost than you were. And the God who would have turned the world upside down to find only you will, if need be, do the same for them. Now, as you might imagine, due to the greatness of these truths that were today expounded, much poetry has been penned in honor to them by our brethren down through the ages, who speak more artfully of this than I, and I would like to leave you with their words. And it would seem to me that it would detract from the greatness of this subject for me to name them, so I won't. I won't even tell you which hymn I'm quoting from, but I have placed these things in a bit of a montage, and these are from different centuries arranged in a way I thought was logical. And I will close with this. Sovereign ruler of the skies, ever gracious, ever wise, all my times are in thy hand. All events at thy command, his decree who formed the earth, fixed my first and second birth. Parents, native, place, and time, all appointed were by him. I find, I walk, I love, but all the whole of thy love is but my answer, Lord, to thee. For thou wert long beforehand with my soul. Always thou lovest me. Father, t'was thy love that knew us earth's foundations long before. That same love to Jesus drew us by its sweet constraining power and will keep us and will keep us surely now and evermore. T'was with an everlasting love that God his own elect embraced before he made the worlds above or earth on her huge columns placed. Long ere the sun's refulgent ray, primeval shades of darkness drove. They on his sacred bosom lay, loved with an everlasting love. Then in the glass of his decrees, Christ and his bride appeared as one, her sin by imputation his, whilst she in spotless splendor shone. Praise our God, his love eternal, who can measure its degrees, spanning for the world's creation, reaching through eternity. Pause and wonder all his children See how great his love for thee. And finally, our sovereign God, by his own words, sustains this world and reigns as Lord. No angel, demon, sinful man can change his course, restrain his hand. O sovereign God, we praise your power, your wisdom, goodness we adore. We bow our hearts before your throne. Help us, O Lord, to trust you more. Help us, O Lord, to trust you more. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent his own beloved Son To keep God's law, live in our place, to bear our sin, guilt, and disgrace. Dead in our sin, estranged from God, we fled as rebels from his love. In sovereign grace, he made us sons and saved us from the wrath to come. And saved us from the wrath to come. Before our birth, he planned our days, laid out our course, ordained our ways. The moments of our lives he weaves, so all the glory he receives. To those he loved before all time, to all he called in grace renewed, he cannot lie, his word is true. He makes all things to work for good, he makes all things to work for good. He has written history's final page, his son's return will end this age. The lamb will come in glorious might, take back his world and end its night. How deep the wisdom of our God, unknown, unfathomed are his ways. None counsels him or knows his mind. We bow before him all our days. We bow before him all our days. O sovereign God, we praise your power, your wisdom, goodness we adore. We bow our hearts before your throne. Help us, O Lord, to trust you more. Help us, O Lord, to trust you more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder of your majesty, We thank you for the glory of your son. We thank you for the way that he holds in his hands the entirety of human history. The way that he guides and directs souls. The way that he shifts whole nations. The way that he can reach his divine hand into any person into any civilization and change it. The way that He moves pieces down through the generations, the effect of which we merely see the process by which it was accomplished, we cannot fathom. It is the greatest privilege of our lives to know you and to be able to glimpse just a small part of your mind. Father, I thank you that in eternity I will always be a student of your nature and it will always be a cause of awesome wonder. And I praise you and I thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.